at low doses, couples can connect more empathically with one another, vulnerably with one another. You're lowering down the defenses and you're creating some space so that they could be more present, curious, open to understanding than just being stuck in their own fears, their Mm. own meanings, their own definitions. And so as a couple, creating a space for them to be vulnerable and talk about their fears around sex, their desires. So many of us have desires, but we're afraid of our partner rejecting us, Mm. or we're afraid of what they're going to think about us. And so this type of container makes that possible. I'm Alexa, and you're listening to That Sex Check, a Soulfire production. Dr. Kat Meyer is a licensed psychotherapist specializing in sex, trauma, and ketamine-assisted therapy, KAP. She's an author and international speaker dedicated to evolving the relationship we have surrounding sexuality and our bodies. Today, you will get to hear a yummy convo between Dr. Kat and our very own Bryn. They navigate some of y'all's very favorite topics, psychedelics slash substances, specifically empathogens that help people experience emotional communion, oneness, relatedness, empathy, and emotional openness, and how that can help people connect deeper with themselves and others that they love. They go into all things pleasure. I'm sure you're shocked. They go into the significance of presence and all sorts of other avenues you all can take to get the life and the sex of your dreams. Enjoy the show, my loves. All right. Hi, everyone. It's Bryn here today on That Sex Chick, and I'm so excited to bring our next guest to you, Dr. Kat Meyer. And today we're going to be talking about all things from ketamine-assisted therapy to sex and trauma and everything in between. It's going to be a juicy conversation, and I'm so excited to have you. So Dr. Kat, welcome. Hi, I'm so honored to be on. Yes, I'm so glad to have you. And I thought I'd actually start our show off a little differently because I'm always curious when I talk to other people in the sex space of what's lighting you up and inspiring you when it comes to sexuality lately? Ooh, what's lighting me up? Mm. I would say, so recently I've been speaking on psychedelics as a way for healing, especially when it comes to our relationship with our bodies and around sexuality. And so there's a lot of talk about psychedelics. Like it's really exciting. It's, it's like the the wild, wild west right now, everybody talking about it, but but we're trying to figure out, okay, where do we land? What's okay. What's ethical. And I love hearing all these conversations. And now I fully own that I'm in that community and I'm in California. So the conversations surrounding me, but I'm seeing it trickling into the Midwest, which is where I'm from. And I'm excited that people are reaching out to me and being like, Hey, what is this ketamine? Or what is this psilocybin? And, and I love being able to dive in about how that can be helpful around healing sex and healing our bodies. And from a different perspective, especially when so many of us might there might be blocks and barriers to the healing, or there might be protector parts inside of us that aren't ready to let go or aren't ready to feel the power that sex brings up in us. And so this creates an experience in which we can touch upon some of these skills that might not otherwise be accessible to us. Mm. 
I love it. I have goosebumps. I'm like, oh yes, please. Let's, let's double click and let's just, let's go there. Let's start talking about the integration of psychedelics and different plant medicines or substances that can be used, like you said, for sexual healing. And I know ketamine assisted therapy is one that you specifically specialize in. Sure. Yes. So let's talk about it. What is ketamine and what is ketamine assisted therapy? Now that's on label. So off label, we've discovered that it can actually be used really powerfully in a clinical setting. So using sub anesthetic doses, ketamine has a powerful and accelerating effect in mental health and physical pains, the chronic pain, helping with treatment resistant depression, anxiety, suicidality, eating disorders, trauma. And it works in a number of ways. So It helps with, by first blocking the glutamate receptors, which has been found to be really helpful with treatment resistant depression. And a lot of times when we think about traditional antidepressants, they usually go to SSRIs or working on the serotonin. But when we think about giving that to clients, like 30 to 70% of people struggle with libido or they struggle with maintaining erections, or they struggle with just the desire for sex altogether or orgasms. And so ketamine, because it work on the serotonin, it actually can allow people to maintain more of their sexual desire and maintain more of the sexual, sexual functioning. I actually see it working even more around sex than that. So, and this is all still very new right? There's not a whole lot of people who are connecting ketamine with sex. A lot of people talking about psilocybin sex or MDMA and how that can be powerful for sex. But ketamine is, oh, I have so much reverence for this medicine. The more and more that I work with it and the more and more that I learn about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's research that indicates that some people feel a slight arousal when they're in the medicine. So when they're in the treatment, they'll feel that arise up. And in my work with clients and in my work, even with myself in the clinical setting, noticing how we can access pleasure in a way that isn't dysregulating to the body. Mm. So ketamine, what makes it powerful that it, it is a dissociator, meaning that we aren't as connected to the body. But when I say that, I'm meaning that it brings in more spaciousness into the body. So there's room to feel your emotions, there's room to connect with your emotions. There's space enough to connect with trauma or a, a distressing events. Again, not in a way that dysregulates you. And so that's why it's so powerful in the mental health world, because we're able to see, oh, that's anxiety. Oh, that's depression. But I'm able to see it. I'm able to dialogue with it. I'm able to be with it and hold it in my own container without it blurring and fuzzing up my my head. (laughs) So when it comes to sex, how much, whether we're depressed or whether we have trauma or high anxiety, we don't want the body. The last thing that we want to do is be in the body. So ketamine allows that spaciousness for us to be able to connect with pleasure as it starts to expand into the body. We might feel what it's like to move in the body because we can move a little bit and connect with sexual energy that exists there. If this is the intention that we're working on, we can also connect with breath work and what it feels like to surrender into the body, or we can notice what it feels like to 
ground in the body. So as you're coming out of the medicine journey, what does it feel like for your body to, for yourself to re-enter into your body? So grounding, which for many people that's dysregulating because be in the body again. So that sensation or that transition from being in a floaty space to more of a grounded space can be. So here in a clinical setting, when you're held by a clinician or a physician and you're, and you're safe and you're held in a specific music that's soothing or a specific setting that's soothing, you have already imprinted in your mind, I am safe. I am safe to let go. I am safe to have these experiences. I'm not going to load, overwhelm, or I'm here. Mm. And that can be really, really powerful. So, so delicious. Yeah. I loved the picture that you painted of it being a dissociative, but it's not that you're disconnecting from your emotions. It's that you are almost being a witness to them, right? Like we hear a lot in the spiritual community, or if you've read the book by Michael Singer, The Untethered Soul, there's this concept of being the witness, right? Uh And it's like, yeah, cool. That sounds great in theory, but what does that actually mean? Mm. And in my experience with ketamine, it's literally that it's being the observer So I'm still able to touch emotions like anger with a disconnect from potential shame or guilt or that internal voice that says like, don't touch that, don't go into that emotion. And so I could see it with this bird's eye view and this clarity of like, oh, it's actually okay to go there. You're just angry and it just is. And it was a really powerful moment to connect to my emotions in that way. So I loved that you spoke. It's like, it's not that we're disconnecting from our bodies completely. Mm-hmm. We just see things with more of a less of like a charge around them. Yeah. Yeah. And a spaciousness. Right. And so many people think about MDMA when they think of empathogens and empathogen means a substance that connects you with your empathy. And ketamine is also an empathogen too. So you're connecting with these emotions, you're connecting with this spaciousness and able to observe, but there's also a sense of compassion there. Mm-hmm. There's this sense of gentleness as you're looking at these pieces. Now, again, I'm not saying that you can't have anxiety come up in here, but there's this space that can happen where you're connected with a, whether you call it self-energy or by yourself, or you know, this state of being that is more present, more compassionate, more curious, that in the regular day, ordinary state of mind, we might not be able to connect with because we're so much in the critical space, or we're so much ruled by this part of the brain called the default mode network, (laughs) which is the part of our brain that is the rumination. It's the part of our brain that we find criticism or involving the self. It turns off when we're focused on something, but once we're in more of a space of of idleness or just wandering, the mind will wander and it'll start perpetuating these negative elements. But when we think about psychedelics and especially ketamine, but psilocybin, MDMA as well, this can turn off so that we can actually work on these different ways of viewing ourselves or feel more connected with the world or feel more connected with our surroundings. Beautiful. Yeah. And I, I loved that you mentioned the importance of set and setting and mm-hmm. feeling safe that working with a licensed psychotherapist is going to be way different than just doing this casually at a party. Right. And so <laughs> having yes. the intention around 
And I know intentions can be such an important part of using these substances. I'm curious. Well, it's just funny timing. I actually got off a a call right before this with a client who we just finished a four month container together and she had struggled with depression and anxiety Mm. and Mm. found her way to a company that supports with ketamine and ketamine assisted therapy. And she just had her first session and she looked rewired. I mean, her Mm -hmm. energy was light. She was hopeful. Um, It brought tears to my eyes to see the transformation Mm. that unfolded in just one session. And she's got five or six more to go. And part of what we talked about was how she did feel really safe to explore her Mm -hmm. emotions, her intentions. And yeah, it was just beautiful. So I'd love to hear I'm curious of some of your, of course, I know you can't share names, but some (laughs) examples of like what you've seen ketamine therapy do for your clients in stories around their sex life. Sure, sure. So I'll keep this more general again. Yes, because I can't speak for my clients, but there's a really unique element to ketamine specifically that for the next 48 hours, your brain is a lot more plastic. So it is a lot more available for neuroplasticity or the changing and rewiring of your brain. So during that period, especially exactly like you're saying, people come out of it feeling a lot more light, more bright, more hopeful, and also more receptive to starting those changes in their brain. So starting to change some of those beliefs. Now, what we do know is neuroplasticity is not a one-time thing. It is a process. It does take time. And so hearing that this particular client has several more sessions to go was really helpful, right? This isn't something you have powerful shifts with passion, but what we like to see is more of the continuous, at least for a bit to support the change in that neuroplasticity. Mm. So it also allows for Again, like I said, uh, create spaciousness so that somebody can connect with their body. They can connect with their pleasure. I love helping people to redefine pleasure because we forget. We tend to think of sex as this culturally constructed idea of what sex is, which is heteronormative, which is penetration focused, genital focused, fast friction I think the average is what, like six to 11 minutes of sex altogether. And so, With a non-ordinary state, like a psychedelic state, we can help to change that definition even more accessibly because here somebody gets to experientially see what I'm talking about when I'm saying pleasure is an energy that moves through your body, you know, and and typically in the mainstream, we're like, what the fuck is pleasure? What the fuck is, well, what the fuck is pleasure? (laughs) What the fuck is energy? You know, what are you talking about? And so here's a way that you can connect without having to be in, you know, our bodies that might be heavy with fatigue or worn out adrenal systems, or, you know, we just have a difficult time even accessing that sexual energy as it exists in our body. Similarly, if I start teaching you that sex doesn't have to be this physical fast paced focus where so many people have challenges, whether it's difficulty with functioning. So difficulty with erections or orgasms, but also our trans population who do not want to acknowledge their genitals. They don't want to touch it. They don't want, but even they are seeing this socially constructed idea of sex and think, well, then I can't have sex or I don't want sex. And sex doesn't have to be any of that. 
It can be the movement of bodies. It can be the breath and the sound and the movement. It Mm. can be, you know, a dance between energy and the other person. It can be grinding, you know, it can be (laughs) all kinds of different things that we have to reprogram. We have to break up with the images that we're given (laughs) to step into this different way of being. Mm -hmm. especially when it comes to sex. Mm -hmm. Now, when we're working with couples, it's really amazing to see how at low doses, how couples can connect more empathically with one another, more vulnerably with one another. Again, you're lowering down the defenses and you're creating some space so that they could both be more present, more curious, more open to understanding than just being stuck in their own fears, their Mm. own translations, their own meanings, their own definitions. And so in, as a couple, you know, creating a space for them to be vulnerable and talk about their fears around sex or talk about their definitions or their desires. You know, Mm. so many of us have desires, but we're afraid of our partner rejecting us, Mm. or we're afraid of what they're going to think about us. And so this type of container makes that possible. It also makes it really possible to be so present So eye gazing, breathing together, you know, these elements that we wouldn't necessarily think of as sex, but they create the container for sex to be really healing and really deepening and intimate and powerful. Mm. So less about technique. Yeah. Technique and more about presence and being and depth and feeling. Yes, yes, yes. I was supporting a call last night for our sex coaches because we run a program called sex coach prep school. And we were talking Mm -hmm. about Tantra and I, what I really wanted our students to take home was it's really just about the art of slowing down and being present and enjoying Mm -hmm. the deliciousness of a person and a human in front of you and how to weave your energies together through simple Mm -hmm. practices like breath and eye gazing. And so I love that this type of therapy can support people that may have walls up, may have blockages, Mm -hmm. may have perceived notions or stories that are keeping them from accessing that amount of pleasure or that amount of presence. And yeah, it just sounds like it helps to remove that wall for so many people. Mm. Oh, for sure. And slows everybody down. I think one of the key pieces of (laughs) our struggles when it comes to sex is that it's very fast friction oriented and people aren't as much in their body and in their own pleasure. They're focused on how do I get the other person off versus, Ooh, this feels good. Let me mm. follow this. Let me allow pleasure to be my compass instead of the end goal, be my compass. Mm. And so here I, you know, again, ketamine helps facilitate that. So you can experientially create the reference point for yourself. Beautiful. So many women that I work with women and femme tell me that they don't know how to surrender. And of course, you know, we look on Instagram and we see all these memes and all these you know, people telling us to surrender. It's important to surrender. It's important to soften. Well, that's a very complex concept that needs to be broken down. And so for somebody who's been through trauma or somebody who's depressed or somebody who's highly anxious, doesn't want to be in their body, letting go is a very scary thing to do. Surrender is a very scary thing to do. So this helps to facilitate that same with breath work, breath work will bring you into a surrender too. Right. Mm -hmm. And so these are ways to support it. So now we have a reference point that we can call upon. Oh, that's what surrender is. That's what they're talking about when they say, let go. 
got it instead of shaming ourselves because we can't access it. Yeah. I love that. And you're so right. There's so many buzzwords and it starts to become trendy, right? Like (laughs) being surrendered is trendy. Being in pleasure is trendy. And it's like, yeah, but what is actually keeping us from accessing that? Or like you said, if we don't have context, if we don't have embodied understanding of what that means, then yeah, it's going to consistently be words on a page until you actually experience it. So I love that. And I love, I just, it makes me so happy that we live in a world where these things are now possible. You know, Mm, I think about growing up, like what conversations like sex looked like to the world that I live in today. And now we're openly having conversations about the intersection of psychedelics and sex. And it's something that people are actively and openly having conversations about. And that fills my heart with so much joy. Me too. And I want us to keep having these conversations because psychedelics are coming, whether we're ready for it or not. And I do believe it can be a powerful avenue. It's not for everyone. Not everyone has the skills to be able to self-regulate. Not everybody is in this mentally not appropriate for this type of medication. And we're also seeing a lot of underground work that's happening. And so I really, really want to emphasize with this conversation that I'm not promoting that you go out and find somebody who's not clinically trained because we do see a lot of underground coaches or therapists or quote unquote shamans or medicine workers or facilitators that aren't trained. They're not trauma-informed, meaning that psychedelics can bring up a lot of our material that is you know, very cleverly held in our subconscious for a very specific reason. So then if you go into psychedelics and that psychedelic happens to open that up, if you don't have somebody there who's trauma-informed and trained to be able to hold that space and help you to either regulate again or not re-traumatize yourself, then you can find yourself harming yourself or if you're facilitating harming the other person. So I do highly recommend work with somebody in the clinical setting. I'm not promoting doing anything illegal (laughs) and, but harm reduction, do your research, Mm -hmm. you know, really interview, do your research, find what resources that are safe, (laughs) legal, (laughs) but definitely keep that in mind because we are also seeing as a result, you know, some of the shadow aspect of psychedelics, which is taking advantage of vulnerable populations, including sexual predators and we're doing the that we can, but because this is underground, it's not regulated. So there's only so much that we can do. And having these type of conversations and teaching people to be conscious consumers is, is what I feel going to help support our population as this grows more and more and more. Yeah. I love that you named that. It's so true. I mean, you're in an altered state of consciousness. You're incredibly vulnerable. You're in- incredibly malleable and impressionable in those states. So absolutely safety is the number one priority in those moments. And so you touched on it a little bit, but I'd love to actually circle back and go a little deeper of Mm. the people that you said, like, shouldn't attempt this yet. Like maybe it's not forever, but you named some things like not able to regulate their nervous system or potentially at risk for certain like mental health disorders. And so who would be a person that Ketamine therapy is not something that they're ready for yet. Yeah. So I, you know, it's a little bit hard to be specific with that because everybody case is very different. They are curious about it. 
to reach out to a kinesthetic therapist or physician and go through the assessment. So before you can even do a therapy session, you have to go through a medical assessment, which is great because then and they're able to assess you where at. But typically if somebody has more tendencies toward psychosis, definitely somebody who's pregnant or breastfeeding, we don't, we don't want that. Although there is more research that's coming out with women who are breastfeeding, I don't think they're ready to announce their results yet, but so to know that there is a lot of work that's being done in the research field because women, especially mothers, new mothers struggle with postpartum depression. So how can we help women, which is a very vulnerable population who can't access so many of the other psychotropic medications. So how can we help them? And ketamine might be one of those that can be really helpful for that. So I don't want to announce their results yet until it's public, but just keep your eyes out for that. But there is also a lot of, well, I guess we'll get into that. I would say people who learning skills of self-regulation. So working with a practitioner to help you gain those skills of self-regulation can be helpful when you go into these. And truthfully, I think self-regulation should be something that we could all learn. (laughs) We could all benefit from, but especially if you're going to go into psychedelics, because that way you can soothe yourself. You can downregulate your nervous system when you get dysregulated or get sent into a fight or flight or freeze mode. But you tune into, you learn about what those signs and signals are. You're developing that relationship with your body. And then that will help you to create that sense of safety and trust so that when things do pop up, you're able to hold yourself and know I'm actually okay. I'm containing myself. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying you can't do ketamine if you don't know that, (laughs) because sometimes you can learn that through the ketamine. But yeah, so ultimately I would just recommend going to talk with a physician and get an assessment. Yeah. Really a beautiful way to describe of just things to look out for. Cause I think like you said, it is becoming something that's a lot more popular and even dare I say trendy. People are just talking about it a lot and it's good to know just like what to look for. I'm always in advocating for people being fully educated when they're making a decision, especially around their sexuality and especially around when they're going to choose to go into an altered state of consciousness. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's also a lot of therapists who are trained in integration. So yes. myself included, because the integration is one of the most important parts. Mm. You know, we talk about set and setting and intentions, which is really helpful in holding a container for these things to come up and you're held and you're safe. But then there's the integration afterward. So you have all of these experiences and these things coming up in this non-ordinary state, but then how do you make sense of it? Or how do you turn something that's abstract into a concrete, actionable step for your life? And so having a therapist who can help you untangle these pieces, your subconscious works in symbols. So you get all these symbols and and you might get bizarre experiences coming up. You might go on a full-on journey here at higher doses of ketamine or psychedelics. And how do you make sense of that? Mm. So (laughs) working with somebody who can ask you questions, who can reflect back to you what they're, what you're saying, help you hear yourself and help you feel yourself. 
because emotions live in our bodies too. So as you're talking about things, you know, we have nonverbal communication and a therapist who's looking at us can tune into the nonverbal communication, help direct our attention there and say, I'm noticing that twitch Mm. go into that space. What do you notice here? Mm. What images come up here? What do you observe? What sense do you make out of that? What is that part of you need? You know, and that is a really helpful way for us to make sense of something that, you know, maybe we took the experience and it doesn't make sense or it was fleeting. And we were like, well, I had this sensation or I had this color or I had this scene, but that doesn't make any sense to me. And so somebody there can hold that and help you connect with that. And help yeah. you connect with your empathy and your compassion in that too. Integration is, like you said, so important. And I used to work at a retreat center. There were no substances being used. It was purely somatic. And one of the parts that I got to work was integration because this mm-hmm. is where we see the people that chase the experience or chase the high and then consistently come back to the same like breakthrough addiction versus like, how does your life now actually look different? And what are you taking from that experience and and doing with it in your life? And I love that you said that a practitioner can help you to connect those dots of like, Ooh, and I felt, you know, the warm embrace and I saw the color yellow. Like what, what do you make that mean? What is, what does that mean to you? It's almost like dream Mm -hmm. interpretation. Right. Right. And I think it's important to have compassion to people who, you know, quote unquote, chase the high or go to ceremony after ceremony after ceremony, because even they're seeking help in the best way that they can. And it might be escape. And so that's even, you know, if we zoom out on the macro, the war on drugs was a direct racist response that was really punishing people who were seeking help through Mm -hmm. drugs. You know, they were seeking escape. They were seeking comfort. They were seeing the stressors and the environmental dangers that were around them. Mm -hmm. So it's important that we not shame, blame, point out people you're doing wrong. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing and really get into the question and curiosity of, oh, what is driving this person to do that? Mm. Yeah. It's such a compassionate and kind perspective. And I think anytime we're attempting to grow in an environment where there's shame or guilt or blame, that's so challenging, right? It's damn right impossible. And yet when we, like you said, we invite in compassion for, I've never heard that described that way, but that's such a beautiful way to look at it. They're just doing the best they could to escape a situation that they didn't have the tools to navigate themselves. So I love that perspective. (laughs) let's shift focus a little bit because there may be people that are listening to this and they're like, wow, this is incredible. And I cannot wait to learn more and to do my research. And actually let's quickly touch on before we fully shift gears, how can someone go about finding a good ketamine assisted therapist? Is there a database? Like where can one do that research? Yeah, there is a database and I'll send you and then they can go to that link. You'll see terms like KAP or ketamine assisted therapist. And so that'll say whether somebody's trained in that particular modality of, of, so I'll provide resources you can share. Amazing. And now I know there's a part of your work that has nothing to do with ketamine and nothing to do with integrating psychedelics. And before (laughs) we started recording, you were saying how 
there's a course that you've created and a part of the work that you do is teaching people how to step into their own eroticism. Mm -hmm. And so I'd love to just overview of like, what is your process for helping people to find their own eroticism? What does that look like? I love that. So I've been working in the sex world, in the sex world, (laughs) in the sex therapy world for about 10 years. And that's a combination of everything from clinical psychology, sex therapy, to Tantra, to BDSM, swingers, non-relating, like I've experienced it all, (laughs) I've created it all into the work that I do. So our bodies all communicate very differently erotically. And it's important to understand how each of us speak erotically so that we can both get what it is, get satiated ourselves and receive the pleasure and the satisfying sex that we want for ourselves, but also to understand what that language is for any of our lovers or partners. Because so often we adopt the socially constructed idea of what sex is and, or we project it onto the other person or that their needs is the same as ours. And then we run into this issue of, you know, not wanting sex, low desire for sex, struggle with orgasms, maintaining erections, mismatch of libido, or feeling like we're incompatible with the other person. But I believe it's all about learning about your own erotic map. What are the things that turn you on? What are the things that turn you off? How does your body language speak? Where are your curiosities lie? Even what sort of stage of your sexual development are you? Um, Are you in right now? So some of us are in healing. Some of us are resting. Some of us are more adventurous or curious or wanting transcendence, you know, and and knowing where you're at is just as important as how you speak. Because if you're in healing and your partner's in adventure, then it's going to feel like you're a mismatch, but it's really about, okay, well, how do we support where we're both at right now? Mm -hmm. And it lessens the pressure of compatibility. And it creates space for more open-mindedness and curiosity and learning so that we don't have to just say, "Eh, we're just not a fit. Let's end it. Mm. There's so much potent work that could be done there, potent work and play that can be done there. And even when I use the word eroticism, it's more than just sex. Sex can be this primal experience between just yourself or with you and another person But eroticism is more of like a, mm, the juiciness of the experience. You know, it's a creative experience. It's using imagination. I think of eroticism as a renewing energy, right? Sex can be depleting. You know, if we're just doing it for the activity or just doing it with fast friction, penetration, goal-oriented idea of sex, But eroticism is, you know, you add play or you add sensuality or you add imagination and fantasy there and it's renewing, it's filling, exciting versus depleting. Mm. That's really interesting to hear the different stages of the sexual journey. I think that was really powerful. And immediately I'm like, oh, I bet there are people that just had light bulb moments of like, oh, maybe I'm just in this stage and my partner's in this stage and how powerful that is when we realize it's not black and white. It's not just, we either meet each other's needs or we don't. And I'm curious if there, cause you referred a lot to like the language and, and getting more understanding of like your flavor of eroticism. 
So I'm yeah. curious if there are any other flavors or language that you could give context, like the stages that was so helpful. Does anything yeah, else come yeah, to yeah. mind in terms of like how we could break it down for somebody listening of like, Ooh, maybe there's a different flavor that they haven't heard of yet. Yes. So there's a couple of pieces there because you've got the epic sexological researcher, Jaya, who's broken it up into five erotic events. And that's energetic, sensual, sexual, kink, and shapeshifter. So all of those help you to touch on what might be your primary language. And I would highly recommend looking those up because I could go in depth with those, but it helps you to see, oh, I might actually be somebody who needs help with connecting with their body and their sense to get out of my busy head, but I'm trying to make myself a sexual you know, and just go straight to the genitals, straight to orgasm. And, but my body is shutting down or I'm struggling with painful sex or vaginismus, or I'm, you know, not enjoying it for whatever reason. It's, it's because it's not meeting feeding or sensual side, or somebody might be kinky. I've published research on couples in which one identifies as kinky and the other one doesn't How do mm. they negotiate the aspect of their sexual aspect of their marriage. And it can break even that down of the people in the relationships, why it works. One of the elements is they both want fulfillment of the other person. Mm. And so that it helps us to become unenmeshed from one another and realize that we're both individual people, with individual needs, individual fulfillments and desires that my desires doesn't say anything about them or it doesn't say anything about me as being a bad lover. It's just realizing that we're speaking, I'm speaking French and they're speaking Spanish. You know, and how can we learn this dance together now? So there's that model, but then I also bring my clients and my students into a process of identifying what your authentic essence is, even from that. So mm. I'll take them through a process of erotic vision boards and seeing where their body gets on by different images or different themes or words. And that can make it more of a nuanced personal expression for you versus just these five. Let's take it even further and identify what your themes are and how you can set your life up with these that pop up mm. to make it more of a context that's juicy and fitting for you. Oh, I love an erotic vision board. Like yes. <laughs> screw the like 2022 vision board. Like I'm just going to go straight in for an erotic vision board. I can already see. Right? I'm like, I want more visual representation of turn on and eroticism in my home. So that's so juicy and so <laughs> just different. So thank you for elaborating even further because yeah, our audience, we had, I'm blanking on his name, Jaya's partner on our- yeah. Ian, thank you. Mm -hmm. yes. We had Ian on the podcast several episodes ago, and it was so beautiful to hear him go deeper into the blueprints. But I love, like you said, taking it a layer further and understanding your essence even beyond that initial blueprint, because it's so dynamic. Like we can't put ourselves in these boxes as we know. There's so much more to that. Yeah, and it's a tool. Absolutely. It's a tool to help contain you and contain the plethora of information that's out there. I mean, how many of us have gotten overwhelmed when we started our sexual journey or discovered, oh, sex could be more than this? They were like, what? Now where do I go? <laughs> so it can continue to give you a space to be free and, and explore, 
But then I, I think we can take it even further and figure out what you are, like your particular essence. Mm. Yeah. I love that reframe. Sometimes the containment is really soothing. It's like, oh, okay, I do, I fit in here. I belong here. There's other people like me. And then we can go a layer deeper. And I'm, I have one other question around you named, you've done research and I actually clicked on your article and I was scanning it earlier around <laughs> couples where one identifies as kinky and one doesn't. You named earlier about this concept of just acknowledging desire and releasing the, like the personal charge around it of like, my partner wants this, I want this. And I'm curious, what are some conversations or sentence starters, things that couples could start to navigate when they're in that dynamic where one identifies as kinky, one doesn't, where can they begin to have that conversation? Oh, that's such a good one. So I always suggest having these sex conversations first start with both of you identifying when is a good time to be able to have these because we don't want to just, you know, gorilla attack our partner. With <laughs> we need to be grounded. We need to be available and present. So it's not a good idea when they're doing the dishes or when they're watching TV, right? Have intentional time and you can even create an experience around it. So maybe you and order in food and light candles and just make it like a fun, playful, like intimate experience. And then I would start out with statements of appreciation because we all want to be seen. We all want to be acknowledged as good lovers. We're all, you know, there can be parts of us that are deeply afraid of not being good enough or not being a good lover or not knowing what to do or how to pleasure our partners. So when we have these conversations, you know, sex is one of the top five most challenging topics of conversation that we can have with our partner. And so how are we easing into that? So th saying things like, one thing that I really appreciate about you as a lover, mm. or one way that I feel really desired by you is. Mm. So starting in that way helps us to open our hearts a bit more. And then moving into the question of curious, sexual curiosity. So I see sexual curiosity on a spectrum that exists from fantasy all the way to actually doing the act. Sometimes we have fantasy or we have these curiosities and we don't actually want to do it. We don't want to bring it to real life because real life would ruin it. <laughs> but we want to feel safe in being able to express. I have a curiosity. I have an interest around this. So when we say one thing that I'm curious about in sex is this darker, kinkier, like power dynamic in sex. We can say on a scale of fantasy to actually doing it, I'm probably at right now I'm at like a 20% because it's just like something that's been tingling in my body. I'm not ready to actually do it, but I want to know that I can talk about it. I'm interested in it, about it and how important it is to, you know, when we're having these conversations that we're present that we're non-judgmental, that we stay in curiosity and we stay in appreciation, especially when it comes to kink. There's so many miseducation and misrepresentation in the world. <laughs> kink and BDSM has, you know, we can look at some of those CSI shows or we can look at these crime shows and they demonize somebody with kink or BDSM saying that they're fucked up, there's something wrong with them, they're pathological, and that's not the case. Their research shows that there's no 
significant correlation between trauma or mental illness in the kink community in comparison to the mainstream community. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's the same. Like you have people who have mental health struggles, doesn't matter what community they're in. They can even be in the tantric sacred spiritual community, right? It doesn't matter. But we like to categorize and we like to have prejudice, especially over something that might be darker or taboo or using types of play that are politically incorrect, you know, and aren't something that would be safe or consensual in the real world, but all safe and consensual and oftentimes very healing in the kink world. Mm. Lovely. That spectrum question was just like a, like, oh, that's so helpful of just where are you at? And how can we make this a, like a tangible thing to talk about of like, okay, it's 20% right now. And could it grow? Sure. But maybe it always stays at 20%. Um, or maybe we're just not sure. And it just, it was a thought that came into my mind and the yeah. safety and the acceptance of your partner, just meeting you with curiosity, open-heartedness, and not trying to make it mean anything more than just like you said, being curious is powerful. I imagine there'll be some really beautiful conversations from our listeners after this. That was really, really beautiful. Sure. There's an open-mindedness to learning. And that was one of the key pieces in the couples that I researched was they were all desiring a fulfillment for each other. They all were in therapy, couples therapy, and they all were open to learning. So they were open to hearing about it. They were open to going to what's called munches, which munches are for fetish community, but everybody comes in in normie clothes. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not a fetish experience. It's like everybody goes to the bar or to a restaurant. So it's a safe place to be able to talk about kink in the community without having the sometimes pressuring or experience of a dungeon or like a play space where some people are doing scenes and wearing latex and leather and chains. <laughs> that might be too much for a partner to see at first. So a level of openness is really important. Mm. It makes me think of a, a previous episode where we had on Oriana Joy, who's a somatic practitioner. And she was mm -hmm. talking about when there is a lack of trauma, we're able to be present. So being curious and I'm sorry, when there's lack of trauma, there's an ability to be curious. So when we're in a trauma response, being curious is impossible because we're in that fight or flight or freeze. Right. And how can you be curious when you're worried about your own safety, right? So I always love coming back to that of like, okay, if I'm in that state where I feel triggered by my partner, then being curious isn't possible right now. I have to go regulate my nervous system before I can continue to ask questions. And maybe mm -hmm. I can do that in the moment. Maybe I can't, but I love the idea of if I'm able to come back to curiosity, that's what helps to create that safety and acceptance for my partner. Right. Right. And even then when I'm working with couples in which this is the case, teaching the partner who's not in teaching them resourcing systemic practices to downregulate the nervous system so that they can access the curiosity mm. so that their mind can expand to be able to hold different pieces about the situation, about the story, so that they're not just defaulting to the same tools or staying dysregulated so they can't see anything beyond the fear, but then also teaching them skills of being able to journal with their internal experience and get them, teach them about how to get curious about their own responses 
Mm. That's creating a sense of safety in themselves, like an internal sense of safety that may or may not be lends very beautifully to these types of relationships so that they can hold themselves in it too. And that isn't to say, and then, you know, every single relationship has their own solutions to how to have that fulfillment for the person. So it ranges, but both people, if both people are present to the negotiation of it, and it's a win-win and not a win-lose, then these relationships can really work. Mm, So, so good. Dr. Kat, you've given so many great tangible like resources for our, our audience <laughs> to walk away with today, which I so appreciate. And I love just having, like I said, a voice in the space that is doing the research and the, you've clearly like studied all of this so deeply, like by being so dedicated to your craft and becoming licensed in this work. And it's just really powerful and yeah, we're just really grateful to have you in this space and to be able to talk about these things so openly. So thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. <laughs> yeah. And I'm curious just to bring our conversation to a close today. What would you like and how are you inspired to leave our audience? Is there anything that's like still burning that you'd love to leave them with or that you could put a cherry on top of this conversation with? What would you like to leave them with today? <laughs> oh, that's such a good question. Hmm comes back to the potential of your sex life is absolutely infinite, but only if we get curious. That just gave me goosebumps. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being a guest on our show today. If when they want to find you, what's the best place (laughs) for them to reach out and to make a connection? Sure. So they can find everything on sexloveyoga.com. That's where I host all of my online programs, a program on sensuality, programs around eroticism, and all of these are trauma-informed. So I make, like we said, all those big concepts broken down into accessible pieces and I tenor the system. So you're not left with just, oh, all this stuff coming up. But they can also find me on Instagram at sexloveyoga or my podcast, Eat, Play, Sex, which is expert-oriented or erotically wasted, which is erotic stories. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Thank you again for all your wisdom and stories today. We so appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. If you loved it, be sure to subscribe so you never miss a new episode. And if you extra, extra loved it, make sure to leave a five-star review. I'll see y'all next week.